Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickinson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo. Well folks, it looks as though Transport New South Wales is planning some significant changes to the bus runs in Dubbo. Today we're going to find out what's happening. We're also going to have a look into decide to see if Dubbo City Council or the regional Dubbo City Council is actually planning on putting in a new tender for the New South Wales Touch Football Tournament. And finally, let's have a look at seeing what's happening down there in Carrington Avenue. Is there a new massive new state government building about to be built? Hello there, Matt. How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. And it's a busy week as always, but when we have our council meetings or our standing committee meetings on, it seems to just ramp up the business level overall. So it feels like I'm chasing my tail a bit this week, but maybe that's a good sign, I'm not I sure. I think so, yes, yes, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And still getting good feedback on the podcast. I think Wonderful. people appreciate the amount of information we give them. It's a long podcast, but there's a lot that happens each week. Oh, each Dubbo. week. It never ceases to amaze me, the that's sort right. of stuff that goes on. I really appreciate the, the hour that you give me of your time, but... The ability to explore things and explain things in greater detail. Mm. I do lots of radio interviews, but typically you've only got that short amount of time because they're trying to fit in maybe an eight-minute segment, cover a few topics if they can, but you can't really delve in the same way that we delve in. Mm. So I really enjoy the fact of being able to explain things in great detail. I enjoy the questioning that you have and the insight that you add because you're looking at it from an outsider's point of view saying, well, if I'm thinking this, then maybe the rest of the public's thinking yes, this as well. Yes. So a good avenue to really get that information out there. Oh, that's terrific. Now, speaking of which, uh, let's jump into it. So during the week, you had a chance to uh, catch up with the Vice-Chancellor over there at the CSU, the Charles Sturt University, because, of course, there was the awarding of the Tony McGrain Scholarship. Hmm. Now, of course, Tony McGrain, he was an ex-Mayor of Dubbo and an ex-State uh, Parliamentarian, and so was a very, very important man in town. He did some wonderful things here in town. And I noticed the fact that CSU uh, offer a scholarship every year um, in regards to Tony. So first couple little couple of things in regards to it. Who was the recipient this year and what did they actually get the award for? And I suppose the next question is how much do they get? <laughs> so it actually isn't given technically by Charleston University because after Tony died and Tony mm was a very instrumental part of Charles Sturt University being in Dubbo. Now, mm. obviously, you don't get a university in Dubbo just because one person says, oh, let's put a university there. A whole range of people were involved. Yes. But there's no doubt about it that Tony was pushing very hard and advocating wherever he could to get Charles Sturt University here. Mm. In recognition of that, then you find that people do like to do something in terms of recognising Tony's contribution. So there's a group of people that actually started a Tony McGrain dinner and it was a fundraising dinner specifically for a scholarship in Tony's name. So the money that's given to the recipient is generated by a dinner typically and I remember going along, it's every second year typically Mm. they hold the dinner, so I remember going along to the dinner last year, Wes Mars was the guest speaker, so they typically have a a guest speaker come along, obviously normal fundraising, you pay some money for a ticket, which adds to the profitability of the night, and there might be a bit of an auction or various events. So they do it differently each time, Mm. but that's the way it it goes through in that program. So that's a a great way for them to not only raise money and give it to a student, but Mm. also to remember Tony McGrain Mm. and remember his contribution. Now, of course, Tony McGrain Place is the, I was going to say street, but it's technically a place Mm. where you've got 
Charles Street University and the senior campus yes. and Macquarie Homestay. So yep. Tony's recognised in the actual street name there as well. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So this year, Emma Solomon was the recipient right. of that. Is she a local girl? Or? I didn't actually get a chance to. I spoke to her for probably two minutes at oh, the okay, ceremony. Right, so yeah. it was a fairly yeah. short ceremony. Yep. And I didn't get a chance to really grill her and find out her total background. Mm. I assume she is. But I don't know that, so I can't say that definitively. <laughs> Do you know what she was studying? Or No, I, I didn't really get a chance to That's talk right. to her. I said, good day, how are you going? Congratulations, well done. Yep. And it was a, a compressed, sometimes they have a, a bigger event. But mm. what typically would happen is that you might have a, a big function, a big event to award the Tony Grant Scholarship. But this year it was just a small luncheon, so it wasn't the big event. Okay. And it's interesting because when I first got on a council, there was also an award called the Dubbo City Councillors Scholarship. Right. And when I got on a council, I was told by some of the existing councillors, this is going back to 2004, mm. that we all contributed a little bit of our massive wage that we got as a councillor. Oh, well, well, there you go. Yeah, what, to, 25 cent a week or something? <laughs> <to do> or? <laughs> well, I, I can't remember how much it was. I have a feeling it was a couple hundred dollars a year. Oh, okay. That so we all contributed yes. to the scholarship so that basically across it started off with 12 councillors. There was a scholarship of a couple of thousand dollars that was given to someone in the name of Dover City Councillors. Right. When the amalgamation occurred, I don't know if there any discussions after that, but mm. that fell by the wayside. But then Dubbo Regional Council, not Councillors, contributed to a scholarship. Mm. And this year, ironically, at the award ceremony, it was in Wagga that the Dubbo Regional Council scholarship was actually given to someone oh, down right? there. So I didn't get to give the yeah, yeah. Dubbo Regional Council scholarship winner right, their scholarship. Right. But certainly this one here was done in Dubbo, so that mm. was good. But uh, and, and again, the amount, I, I think it's in the vicinity of $6,500 now. So okay, so that is a reasonably significant figure, isn't it? Like it that is, that's exactly any right. any student. Yeah, and yeah. they've got, we don't get involved in council, doesn't get involved in working out who wins the award. The, there's a scholarship process mm. that Charles Sturt has. As you can imagine, mm. with most universities, they've got a scholarship process. So they've got a range of criteria. Mm. They've got reasons and various processes they go through to pick out the winner of that. Mm. So we entrust that process to them. Yeah. But again, that scholarship dinner, which again is not a council function, it's done by a group of people, started by a group of people who mm. knew Tony, had a lot of respect for Tony, and wanted to keep honouring his name. Mm. So I assume that that award will keep going on for a long time and that fundraising dinner will keep going for a long time. Yeah. But I also had a chance to have dinner with Professor Renee Leon. So she's the Vice-Chancellor, isn't she? Is she the one? Yeah, yeah so okay. she's... And I don't know whether it's the vice chancellor or a vice chancellor. Yeah, that's right. Is there a couple of them? Or I don't know actually. But okay. I've often dealt with the vice chancellor. Various people have been the, the mm. vice chancellor mm. that's dealt with us here in Dubbo. So mm. I've just always called them the vice chancellor. Yeah, yeah. Don't know if there's seventeen of them or one of them. <laughs> that's right. But uh, I had dinner with um, Renee, and mm. I think that was a good chance just to talk about where. Charles Sturt is headed, what their big mm. picture is. Now, one of the things for Renee, she's based in Bathurst, yep. so she doesn't know Dubbo intimately, but obviously mm. knows enough about Dubbo. Mm. And one of the things that I thought when we were hit with COVID-19 was that Charles Sturt was in a fantastic position because they already did a lot of remote learning. Mm. So they had it, maybe not nailed, but mm. I think they had it pretty well covered. But imagine we had the processes pretty well set up by that stage for a bit of that anyway, I'd suggest. Yeah, that's right. And so it made it a bit easier for them, mm. I think. Other universities had to work out how to suddenly mm. deliver all yeah. of their content and their lectures remotely. So they were struggling a lot, I yes, think. Yes. And Charles were actually quite well positioned. That's probably hurting them a little bit now. And I used to remember, or I remember when I used to go up to O-Weeks mm. at Charles University, they used to get me to come along each year mm. and just 
welcome people to Dubbo, welcome to the university, mm. just be part of their O-Week official welcome. And I used to stand there in front of, I can't remember, 150 students maybe, yep. talking about it's great they're studying and well done and just the normal sort of things you expect to say. Mm. And I haven't done that the last two years, certainly. Mm. And I spoke to the Vice-Chancellor and, and just asked about that. But the numbers they've got enrolling physically at the campus now have dropped fairly significantly since those days when it used to go along 150 people. And the interesting part is that I think their success at delivering remote learning is probably hurting their on-campus... So they're still getting the online participants, but they're not getting the the actual physical bodies there attending the campus. And the part that Renee was talking about was that some of these people, many of these people, in fact, Hmm. are here in Dubbo. So they're registering... Online, they're just coming from home, just working online. They'd rather doing, sit in their pajamas yeah. at home I can rather than go. That, to be honest, but yeah, yeah, enough, but and this is part of the problem we have, not mm. just for universities, but for a whole range of organisations, yeah. Rotary clubs, sporting organisations, a whole range of different things. Getting people out of that habit yeah. of staying home. Yep. Pandemic came and everyone hated it. Oh, I've got to stay home. I want to be able to go out. Mm. And then they got used to staying home. They mm. went, oh, that's actually not too bad. That's right. So yeah. for studying, that's one of the. And again, it's not necessarily a problem. But that's one of the interesting spots they've gotten themselves into where they've gone, we've delivered this remote content fantastically. Mm. Isn't it great? And we've really got the tools set up to be able to deliver that. Mm. But now the on-campus experience, and that's one of the things that I love about university, is just being with other people, not always studying the same course as you, but being with other people that are studying, maybe similar ages, maybe similar interests. But it just felt a real vibe. Yeah, yeah. And I think the campus at Dubbo there used to have that real vibe, but now reduced student numbers mm. probably doesn't have that same Absolutely, vibe. it affects it across the board. So you mentioned there that you spoke to the Vice-Chancellor about uh, some plans and that for the future here. So what are some of the plans? What are they looking at doing with this? Well, one of the plans is a real catch-22 or, or chicken and egg situation. Mm. If they run more courses, they'll get more students. That makes sense. Mm. But if they run courses and they don't get enough student enrolments, then it costs them money to run the course. They've got to pay a lecturer. Mm. They've got certain mm. costs associated with any course. And if they don't get enough people using that course, then they're not making money. Mm. So then you cut the courses back. And of course, that then cuts mm. the students back. Mm. So do you make an investment and say, we're just going to run more courses and live with the fact we're going to lose yep. money for yep. the next... the bullet, so to speak. That's right. Yep. The next two, three, five years, whatever it might be. And then we'll build the student numbers up to the point where we'll start making money out of that. Or do we say well, that's not worthwhile. Let's really go to that online model and focus on that online model. Mm. One of the comments that I made to Renee was that I don't think yet, even though it's been here for over 20 years, I don't think people still really understand that we've got a great university presence with Sydney University as well, with the School of Rural Health. We've got Sydney University. Sydney Uni Uni here as well. (laughs) So I don't think that enough people just associate Dubbo with university education. So... I encouraged in a range of different ways to get out there and, and actually work out ways to make sure there's a presence, even if it's something silly, like mm. when you and I at uni, you, you might be doing egg and spoon races throughout the CBD yep. from pub to pub. Or, sort of fun times, great yeah, memories, absolutely. Right. Yeah, Put on your yeah. racket gowns and you've got to go out and you know, get a drink from a stranger yeah. or whatever it might be. Yes. Maybe that's too dangerous these days. Maybe that's not a good <laughs> idea to suggest. But something where you almost need mm. people in Dubbo going, oh, those university students, they're, they're yes, such yes. a problem, but secretly going, oh, it looks like they're having some fun. Yes, that's right. So it just makes it more obvious there mm. are these mm. university activities around the community because yeah. where they're situated, both Sydney Uni and 
Charles Street University, they're situated out on the mm. edge of town. Yes, you wouldn't say they're prominent sort of positions as no, you're driving past them. No, that's, that's right. right. So just getting that presence. And again, I think the student body for Charles Street, the, the sweet spot, if you like, probably some of the locations west of Dubbo, Burks and mm. Walgots and Brewarrenas mm. and Cobars, they're probably, their students are more likely to come to Dubbo mm. than possibly going to Sydney. Yep. Dubbo students probably are going to say, look, I've lived in Dubbo, it's a great place to live. I want to explore the world a bit more. I might go to Newcastle or Wollongong or maybe even Sydney. Mm. So they might want to go down and explore somewhere a bit bigger. But for someone in the Walgut, the Burke and the Bree, some of those students are quite happy to come to Dubbo yeah. and it suits them easier. They can get home a bit easier and it's, it's a step up into a bigger city. So I think that's their sweet spot there. Yeah. Working out how they deliver and all that is a real challenge. But... Incredibly important for Dubbo. Absolutely. And just to finish off, I can give you a classic example of why the university is so important here for us in town. Um, when they used to have the primary school teaching up and running and it was, it was they were getting good numbers there, we had lots of casual teachers here because quite often they were the mature age students who were turning around and taking on a teaching degree later on in life. And of course, they were established here in Dubbo. So therefore, they were staying here in town, picking up the casual jobs, then moving into full-time placement here. Unfortunately, once they closed off the primary school teaching aspect there of the city up there at the Charles Sturt University, the numbers of casuals already started to drop off pretty quickly straight after that. So yeah. it is so important that we get these guys back up and really pushing through the way that we're hoping they can. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's part of the whole process, just talking about it, being aware of it. Mm. And you're spot on with the age of the students. I remember the very first O-Week talk that I was going to deliver the head of school at the time, I think might have been Bev Moriarty, mm. and she said, can you come and talk to the students? And I went, yeah, sure thing. And I kind of was imagining or remembering back to my O-Week and just imagining the talk that I might give about these students, about getting out there and having mm. fun. And I'm imagining I'm talking to 150 18-year-olds. And so I'm going through that in my mind. And then I'm sitting on the the front or in front of all the students there waiting for the ceremony to start. And Bev was beside me. And I said to Bev, I said, I'm looking out at the student body here, Bev, but all the parents are there. Lots of the mums are out there. Where are the students? And yeah, they said, yeah. no, no, they're the students. And I've gone, oh, I better change my speech very quickly because I'm thinking about 18-year-old guy out and yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's right. have yeah, a good time. and whole uh, different sort of ball game today. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. So you're right. A lot of those mature age students, mm. it's great that they can go on at some stage later in their life and change their career, maybe pick up a career, pick up their first degree maybe. Mm, so we want it to be there and strong. And I think we can get there with the community that we've got here supporting it. Yeah. Looks like you're uh, planning a road trip. Talking about going back to your days, you're 18-year-old, there you go, a road trip. But this time around, you're looking at doing a road trip with the regional cities in New South Wales. All right, mate, is, what's, what's going on here? What's, what's this? Are you getting a little bus together and throw a couple of slabs in the back? Or what's, <laughs> what's the plan here with the road trip? What's the movie that comes to mind first when you think of road trip? There's a few that I oh, can think I, of. I'm thinking Las Vegas, you know, the, the four of them are going to find a tiger somewhere in the motel room. <laughs> That's exactly the same I was thinking <laughs> big, big tattoo in the face later on. <laughs> so this reg- will get dangerous. Regional cities in New South Wales, we've mentioned it before, there's 15 cities in regional cities in New South Wales. Mm. And we typically meet at Parliament House for a couple of reasons. One, it's convenient for all of those cities across the state to get to Sydney. Right. Sydney's pretty central to all of them, and there's typically flights from most of those cities to get down there, maybe not so much, say, from Bathurst, mm. but the Bathurst Mayor and GM typically drive down. Yep. There's not a lot of value in them flying from Bathurst, for example, to Sydney, but yep. it's pretty easy for everyone to get to there. And the second reason is we typically like to have one or two ministers come along and just engage with us, hear from us to hear 
we what we think is needed and hear from the minister mm. about the direction they think things should go in. It's easier to do that at Parliament House, which is where we typically meet, mm. and we do it when Parliament is sitting because we know they're more than likely yeah. going to be there. Yep. The only downside is sometimes they'll be halfway through a presentation and the bells start ringing and they've got to go, oops, oh, we're going to vote. Off. Oh, we'll on. be back in yeah, a minute. Yeah. They go off and vote and come back and continue on. So that's normally what's happened. Now, the last two meetings that we've had, mm. it's been brought up that maybe it'd be a good idea to go and visit one of the other cities as a bit of a road trip, as you yep. say, a bit yep. of a learning experience. And back in the old Evo Cities days, the uh, so I was chairman of, of Evo Cities and there were seven cities there. Mm. And we used to do that. So we went to a couple of different cities at different times and okay. basically did that. But with seven cities, it was a bit orga- easier to organise seven mm. to get to one location. With 15 cities, mm-hmm. the first time I was brought up, and again, I'm chair of regional cities in New South Wales, I said, I'm happy to organise that, but is it realistic for all of our 15 cities to try and get to one of our fellow cities mm. to have a tour and just learn something from there? Mm-hmm. And so we put it on hold after that particular meeting, and then the next meeting it was brought up again, and I thought, well, they're obviously very keen, so let's organise it. Mm. So we're organising it now. It'll be the end of May. We've just got to get the exact timing of it. Okay. And we're going to try and do two in one hit. So we've gone for well, tweed. I going to try and do 15 cities no, in one Not hit. in one go. No, that might be, that might be exactly what you're talking <laughs> you about. You probably will come and back, back with a big tattoo on the side That's of your face right. if you did that. So we picked, first of all, on Tweed and Lismore. Now, Lismore... Oh, I guess an interesting choice. Yeah, and, and both of those cities have got some challenges at the moment yeah, that yeah, we think yeah. we can all learn from. Lismore, with flooding and the recovery from flooding huge tasks they've got there in front of them. And so mm. what we'll typically do, we'll probably go to Tweed first. Tweed has got an absolute issue with housing. Lots of cities have got an issue with housing. Mm, mm. But I probably think Tweed has got the worst problem with the number of people who want to move there mm. and the lack of housing available for them. Sure, yeah. So from that perspective, we'll probably fly into Tweed, first of all, yep. and we'll have probably a half day there. So we'll get a presentation by their staff just to talk about some of their current challenges. Mm. And I guarantee around the room, 15 other, or there'll be 14 other Tweed being 15. Their heads. Yeah, for yeah. a lot of us, I think they'll be saying, yeah. oh, yeah, we've got the challenge. Oh, how are you doing that? How yeah. are you addressing that? And then we'll go for a bit of an inspection. We'll say to the Tweed Mayor, for example, Chris Cherry's the mayor up there, and just mm. say, Chris, take us somewhere that you think is indicative of some of your problems or some of your solutions, something you want to mm. show off to the other cities. Mm. So that'll be a half day there. The next day we'll have our actual board meeting, and we've got a couple of ministers who are keen to go along and talk to us oh, there. Okay, cool. Rose Jackson and Tara Moriarty are both keen to come along and talk to us. They are they local engage. members up there, are they? Or? No, but... One of them, Rose Jackson, is she's got a number of ministerial roles, but one of them mm. is Minister for North Coast, so okay. that may yep. well be relevant yep. there. Tara's regional New South Wales minister. Yep. I don't know the exact title, but basically regional. So, mm. again, it, it applies to there. But we'll have lots of the ministers that will come through and meet with us as mm. we go forward. But they're keen to come along. So we'll probably have a board meeting the next morning. We'll do that in Lismore, and then we'll go around again, same sort of process, mm have a discussion with the staff, and then go for a bit of an inspection. And I'm sure the other councils are keen mm. to see some of, for example, the flood-affected areas, yeah. how the recovery will work from there. Steve Krieg is the mayor there, so he'll obviously organise the best place to go there and then yeah. come back home the next morning. So not a lot of time there. I'm conscious that there are very busy schedules we're trying to work with across the 15 yeah. cities. But I think the learning process and just seeing how other councils are addressing similar problems. We've all got yeah. similar problems to deal with, similar issues to deal with. 
seeing how they're addressed by other cities, I think will be an invaluable learning experience. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll be absolutely fascinated to uh, to hear, particularly in regards to Lismore, you know, how they're bouncing back after the floods and particularly the CBD area, you know, the, the businesses, all those sort of areas through there and, and how council is actually working with government agencies in regards to trying to get that town back up and going again. Yeah, because huge mm. challenges there. And the reality is local government just does not have the finances to restore somewhere like Lismore yeah, to how yeah. it is restored. And, in fact, what do you do long-term? There's no good rebuilding at the same as it was because there'll be another flood, Absolutely. I guarantee. That's right. And then you're in the same situation. So what do you do? Do you move the whole city? Mm. Do you build a levy bank around? What do you do? Yeah. And these are yeah. some of the questions that I'm sure we'll have and some of the answers that they may have. Some of the answers, but maybe not all the yeah. answers yet. Now, last week's podcast, Matt, we talked about uh, future planning and in regards to the, the South Dubbo Bridge and how that's now back on the agenda. Well, it looks as though there's been a bit more future planning um, from the point of view of some discussions happening in regards to water. Now, this is obviously going to be uh, an ongoing point of discussion, I suggest, out here in the country and... Uh, we seem to be sort of rolling between floods and droughts and floods and droughts. And uh, so obviously maintaining a constant water supply for us out here is so important. So it appears as though um, there's been a little bit of planning in regards to the John Gilbert Water Treatment Plant. So what's happening here? Because right now, I'm assuming here too, we've got Wellington, Geary, Dubbo and the regional areas. How does the water operation, I suppose, work here? And what's maybe some of the plans and thoughts in moving forward from here? So you have got the John Gilbert Water Treatment Plant. That provides water, treats water for Dubbo, as in mm. the Dubbo city area. We also then pump water out to Umundri and out to Wongarbon. Mm. Geary's got their own very small water treatment plant, yep. and Wellington's got their own one, both of so those. three separate operations basically running right now. Correct, and, okay. and those two, the Geary and the Wellington ones, are legacy ones. And when we did, I've been on council when we delivered water to both Wongarbon and Umundri, and for both of those, we looked at the best way to deliver water to those two communities and we looked at things like a small water treatment plant, even a small desal plant in both of those locations. Oh, okay. right. And in the end, the best way to deliver, and it was pretty close in terms of the way mm. to do it, the best way to deliver it was to keep treating the water at Dubbo and then via a pipeline get water out to those two locations. Right. So there's a couple of things we're doing here. It's generally called an optimization study. We've got the John Gilbert Water Treatment Plant from memory, we did a major upgrade of that back in about 2006. Okay. So it's getting up close to 20 years yep. of age. What's the normal length of time that you'd probably think that a water treatment plant would, would run for until it needs to be upgraded again? Major infrastructure like that, you'd probably say at 30 years, okay. you'd be wanting to do some major refurb, maybe yep. major replacements, doing some pretty serious yep. maintenance so work on that. it makes sense then. 10 years out is probably the time to start to plan again. Correct. And so there's two things we might look at. We might say... What's the best way to get the John Gilbert water treatment plant up to a standard that we want it to do? Keep in mind that we've got a growing population. We're growing mm -hmm. at almost 1% a year, so that's yep. fantastic. Yep. And we've also got a changing environment, and we've seen that over some of the floods we had at the end mm -hmm. of last year. Mm -hmm. We'll have droughts. We'll have floods. We'll continue to have that. They'll be more extreme. We know that with our mm -hmm. changing climate. So we need to make sure that whatever we've got there is going to be the best for that scenario. And you hit the nail on the head with the South Dubbo Bridge. We don't want to plan the water treatment plant to be able to give us water today and tomorrow. We really need to be planning for it to deliver water next decade, mm. the next two decades. What does it look like down that path? Because you don't want to spend millions of dollars, which anything you do on water treatment plants seems to be millions of dollars. Yeah, right. You don't want to spend millions of dollars now 
and then go, oh, gee, mm. we didn't spend quite really enough. Is that really the best way to do it? Yeah, yeah, we didn't do it quite right. So we're doing a couple of things. We're doing an optimization study, first of all, on the John Gribble water treatment plant. That's yeah. specifically about that plant and treating water. But also on the background of that, we're saying, well, we need to look at the overall picture. For example, are we better off? And I'm not saying this is what we're going to do, but mm. this is the sort of question you need to ask. Are we better off having one water treatment plant somewhere, maybe where it is now, maybe a bit further up the river, and that water is delivered from that water treatment plant to Geary, to Wellington, to Dubbo, to one garden, to Yamundry, okay. yep. essentially everywhere. So rather than have three water treatment plants that we're mm. maintaining, three different pieces of infrastructure, three different age levels, even different types of water treatment mm. plants, one water treatment plant, obviously bigger mm. than any of those three, bigger than the Dubbo one, for example, yep. but using pipelines then to get that water out, is that a better way long term? What are the costs of running that? What are the costs of maintaining mm. that? And again, I'm not talking about the cost next year, mm. the cost of electricity to, to pump that water might be more than treating it at each plant, but I'm talking in 10 years, in 20 mm. years. What about mm. when you've got to upgrade that plant as opposed to upgrading three separate plants? Mm. All of these sort of questions. So yeah. the optimization study is really taking your money, rate yep. pays money, and saying big picture, holistically, long term, what's the best way to use this money? And that's one thing typically that I find mm. councils are normally, not always, but mm. normally pretty good at because if I'm running a large ASX 200 company, I'm a bit worried about the share price. If I'm the chairman or the CEO of that organization, I'm worried about the share price because sometimes I might live or die by the share price. So I'm probably going to take decisions that are sure looking to the future, but making sure they also deliver yep. right now. Council can look at, and I'm not saying you waste money short term, but you can look at things a little bit more strategically, a little bit more long-term, because you're not trying to worry about a share price, not trying to make sure that yep. you're still the chairman tomorrow, you don't get voted out because the share price dropped by 2% and suddenly everyone panics. You're really trying to say, let's set ourselves up for the long-term future. Mm. And I always hope that any council in the future looks back at the 2021 to 2024 council and says... They made some good decisions. Yeah, gee, yeah. they put us in a good spot. Yep. They left the place in a better spot than when they came in. Yes. And they set us up for the future. And that, I'll, mm. I'll stand proudly and say, great, mm. I was a part of that council. If they look at it in the future and go, wow, why didn't they look at the future? Why mm. didn't they plan this better? Where was their strategic focus? I feel like we've done a bad job. So that's something that's happening now. You won't really see a lot of the impacts of that tomorrow. Yep. Yep. But you'll see that as time rolls forward. Hey, so tell me, in regards to your planning, and, and here's a classic example, is, is this something that, that council does internally or do they outsource um, you know, the, the planning operation of this from the point of view of getting the ideas and suggestions? Is this, do you get experts in the field to come in and help you out or have we got enough experts here in, in our regional council to do that? Typically you will engage some external contractors for that sort of work, consultants maybe, people that have got expertise. Yep. We've got staff who are very good dealing with our water treatment plant yep. or our three water treatment plants, but you might have a consultant that deals with 30 water treatment plants or mm. deals with a whole range of different ones at different stages mm. and also knowing about what's new, what's coming up. We might have one of our staff that's an absolute expert on the John Gilbert water treatment plant and knows that inside out and knows how to make that absolutely sing, mm. but they may not be an expert on the technology of next decade because it's not their job. They don't yep. have to focus on that. Yep. So typically for this sort of thing, and we are using external consultants for this, but typically yep. you would bring in some external expertise, if for nothing else, then just to do a sense check on the work yeah, that you're already yeah. doing internally. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of planning, um, 
Sounds like there's been a workshop that's uh, been held during the week in regards to the Dubbo Regional Livestock Markets. Um, and this is obviously a, a big part of the operations here within Council. So I'm assuming here in regards to this that, uh, that, that planning takes place and there's always going to be eyes that are going to look over all of the business operations. It's a very normal aspect of any business. So what, what's happened with the, uh, with the meeting here recently in regards to this? What's, are there any particular thoughts and ideas that are being bandied about in regards to moving forward here with the markets? It's really one of those things that you do need to look at all your business operations. We've got a number of different businesses. We've got an airport. We've got a caravan park. Mm. We've got a, a regional livestock market. We've got a number of different businesses. Some of them make money. Great. Mm. They return money to council. Therefore, we can use that money for other things. Some of them lose money or a subsidise is probably a better way to put it. And what we might want to do is we want to minimise that subsidy. We've already talked about the swimming pools. We yep. subsidise the swimming pools. They cost us a lot of money. Yep. We want to minimise that as much as possible because if mm. we can minimise it, well, it's a bit like making money. If we can minimise it, that's more money we've got mm. to spend on other things. Mm. The Livestock Markets is a great facility for Dubbo. Are they a money-making part of the whole business operation for Dubbo? Are they a big part of that for council? Typically, yes. And it does come and go a little bit depending mm. on the rain, the season, droughts, how many sheep and cattle are put mm. through there. There's a certain cost for us to maintain and operate that, obviously. Yep. But typically, it is something that I would expect to return okay. a dividend to council so that we can use that money in other areas. Yep. But then there's some fairly capital-intensive work we do mm. from time to time, mm. upgrading the flooring, upgrading the pens, putting shade cloths over the top. Yep. All these things cost money, the Weybridge, all and those things. Sort of maintenance costs of the major operation, I suppose. Yeah. Well, there's maintenance costs, but there's also expansion costs or uh, yes, replacement costs. Yes, and yes. there's a whole range of issues with animal health and safety, so you've mm. got to make sure you're taking care of that. Mm. Yep. So what we're doing with that one, we've been doing a few workshops, just looking at the business model there. It's a complicated business model because council, we, the community, owns the sale yards. We own the land. We own the physical infrastructure there. Mm. The Dubbo Stock and Station agents typically run the sales there. They run a computer system there. So they're an important part of what we have okay. in relation to the livestock markets. Mm. It's a symbiotic relationship, I would suggest, between the Dubbo Stock and Station agents and council. But is that the best way, keeping in mind that this all started sometime back in the 1950s? Oh, so it's been an operation that's been running for the best part of 70 years. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Talbagar Shire Council was the council that first started oh, those wow. yards. Is, yeah. I don't know what the model looked like all those years ago, but it's changed and developed and grown and mm. bounced around over the years. Then there was an amalgamation in 1980 mm. when Dubbo City Council and Talbot Shire Council amalgamated. And again, I'm probably sure that changed a little bit further then, mm. and then obviously another amalgamation in 2016, mm. and here we are today. So it's one of those things that's just important to look at those operations are we doing everything in the best possible way? Because, as I said before, mm. from my perspective, it's not my sale yards, it's your sale yards, it's the mm. community sale yards. Yep. And what's the best thing that I can do as the current custodian to make sure those sale yards are delivering for the overall community? Now, when sales go through there, they do inject money into our economy. When people come in and you have farmers come in, you have buyers come in, you have carriers come in, we estimate, there was a report years ago, I remember seeing, that estimated maybe somewhere in the vicinity of $60 million that injects into our economy by mm. having the sale yards there. So mm. it's incredibly important. It doesn't put $60 million on the bottom line of council, obviously. Right, right. That'd be uh, nice it, if it did. would be nice if it did, that's right. <laughs> but it is important for the overall economy. Mm. But what's the best way to run it? What's the best way going forward? 
again, because we've had so many changes, mm. there have been changes in the Local Government Act, there's been changes in competition law, there's been changes in animal um, welfare and mm. safety, so chain of responsibility. So there's all these regulatory mm. changes that we've got to make sure we're on top of. And I think it's probably fair to say that maybe it hasn't been looked at close enough with various changes that have that have occurred over the years, mm. and there were some more guidelines that came out from the Office of Local Government even as recently as last year. So we're looking at that and seeing what's the best way to run it. So is this all part of then what you refer to then as the workshop? Is this where you get all the stakeholders together? Uh, do you get council? Do you get um, stock and station agents? They all come in and, and sort of offer their thoughts in regards to how this is going to move forward? This particular workshop we didn't. This was right. really councillors just working out what We've got there now and, and okay. where we can go forward. We've also got one of our consultative committees is the Livestock, WA Regional Livestock Markets Committee, Consultative Committee. And so in that we do have all the stakeholders around and we have regular discussions there as well. But it's probably fair to say that councils have got to first of all work, work out what is the best business model with a community focus mm, on mm. and then go and have further discussions okay. with all the other stakeholders to make sure we deliver for everyone, and that's the real challenge here. Mm, mm. We don't want to do something that just delivers for one particular stakeholder and ignores everyone else. Yep. First and foremost, the owners of that sale yards, that's the community. So we've got to make sure the community is looked after, mm. but also we want to make sure that all these other stakeholders are looked after as well. Mm. So it's a challenging one, but this is part of the process we really want to make sure. And this group of councillors, I think, are very focused and dedicated on making sure we get lots of things right make sure we get things set up in the way that's going to be great for the long-term future of the organisation. And we're still going through the amalgamation process, not that the sale yards have been necessarily amalgamated, Mm, but mm. lots of things were focused on the amalgamation and then other things maybe got pushed to the side a bit while the amalgamation focus was on and bringing two councils together. So you've got to make sure... Well, this time later, it's still still sort of raising its head, so to speak. The estimation is when you have an amalgamation, the estimation has always been... 10 years later, you'll finally get it running smoothly. So it takes a fair bit of time. We've got two big organisations here and two communities that are Mm. really trying to get it all together. So it's an interesting process, but we'll get there and we'll keep communicating with our stakeholders. Mm. We'll keep communicating. You and I will keep talking about it. A fair few changes, I think, will happen over time. How big they'll be, I'm not sure, but we'll refine that model to get it in the best way it can operate. Okay. Transport New South Wales. Now, these are the guys, of course, that run the um, the bus lines around here from the commercial point of view of the pickups around town, uh, not so much the private operation. This is the commercial groups that uh, if you want to catch a bus from South Dubbo into the city, well, these are the guys that do this. This is the group that uh, organises and runs it. Now, it looks as though they're bringing in some significant changes, Matt, in regards to uh, how these routes are going to operate, um, how many routes are going to operate, and appears as though where the bus stops are going to operate. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, does it look as though, I suppose from what their plans are, that they're going to be putting in more bus stops into residential areas that have not had bus stops in front of them in the past? Correct. Okay. So is, is, there, is this going to be a potential problem? Correct. Okay. So it feels like it's playing that, you know, who am I sort of thing, putting a little thing on top of my head here. <laughs> one word answer only. That's right, one word answer only. Now, it sounds great. 16 Regional Cities Bus Services Improvement Program is a Transport for New South Wales initiative. Mm. And it makes sense. So this is government-based. This is not local council. This is government here. It's New South Wales state government. Correct. The whole reason they've instigated this is broadly to expand and improve the commercial bus services in those 16 major regional cities that I talked about. Mm. The plan is that if they can improve those bus services, then they'll have increased patronage, 
and basically enhance the public service, public um, bus sector, the public transport service sector for those 16 cities, Dubbo being one of those, obviously. Mm. So it makes sense because people often talk about the fact that in a regional city, you really need to own a car. Yep. It's very difficult to get around unless you live close enough to where you've got to get to to walk or ride a bike. Mm. You need to own a car because it's not like you're in Sydney where you just look up the time travel and go, oh, the next bus yes. will be three in 10 minutes or a tram or a train. You've got That's fairly right. limited public yes. transport options. But there's already been a few people that have contacted me and said, I've got a letter here from Transport for New South Wales saying there'll be a bus stop at the front of my place and not only a bus stop at the front of my place, but also no parking at the front of my place for a certain distance before and after the bus sign. Some of them will just be a bus sign. In other words, bus stop here. So you wait there for your bus or you get off at that spot. Other ones will have a bus shelter. So again, it all sounds good in theory, Mm. but there's some people unhappy Mm. about it. Now, the, the really tricky part with something like this is that this went to our committee meetings on Thursday night and it was really a report to say, this is what we're doing. There was no decision to be made by council because we don't control transport mm, for New mm. South Wales. It's a state government so it's authority. it's like a courtesy letter to sort of say, this is, this is what's happening and I just want to inform you and update you. Yeah, and look, they formally say we want to give approval, we want council to give us approval, mm. but we don't really have the option to say no. Well, what happens if you say no? Well, nothing. They just do it anyway because they <laughs> outrank That's us. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're going to do it. And okay. again, the people that have contacted me already, there's been a few people that have contacted me. Yep. And I've said, we don't control it. We're not doing it. Yep. We're not going out there and saying, put a bus stop here and don't put one over there because yep. my friend lives over there or something. So the problem is the letter comes out and it's actually got an email address in there. And I've sent a few people that have sent emails to that email address mm. and they've had quick, pretty quick responses. So okay. if people do get that letter or they've got concerns about it, yep. then I'd encourage people to reach out because when you look at the big picture, it does make sense to have better bus services mm. in Dubbo. So everyone would go, yep, great idea. But then when you take up car parking spots, so you've got a bus stop at the front of your place and someone comes around for dinner yep. and they can't park out the front of your place because, sorry, that's a bus stop, Mark, you'll get fined if you park your car there. You better go and park in front of a neighbour's house. Is, is that a 24-7 thing? or It seems to be. So mm-hmm. I don't have all the details, but mm-hmm. the people that I've spoken to so far have said that the letters they've received have basically mm-hmm. said, no bus biking for a certain distance before and after the sign. So it seems mm. like 24 hours, even though we know buses aren't running at 1 no, o'clock in the no, morning. No, I've never seen a bus do that. No, that's right. So the thing is you then feel a bit rude to your neighbour because mm. you say, oh, Mark, just go and park in front of the neighbour's place. Yeah. The neighbour said, mate, I've got some friends coming around. Why yeah. have you told your yeah. friends to park in front of my place? I want my friends to park in front of my place. Yeah. So I can see the problem there because we haven't been used to having bus stops at the front well, of your place. Well, that's right. It, it's, it's not necessarily part of our DNA living in a country town to have bus stops sitting outside a residential. They normally, in the past, have picked areas that I suppose maybe it's a block of land that's sort of vacant or a, a commercial base or something like that for normal pickups. So are we talking here about a significant number of residential bus stops that are going to be put in? There's certainly a number, and I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but there's certainly, I'd, I'd say at a guess, maybe 20, maybe okay. 30 even wow. around. Because if you're going to have efficient bus services, yeah, yeah. then you need to have a fair few. There's no point having one bus stop, the, the bus stops at one spot, mm. and that's it. You want people to be within a close enough vicinity of each bus stop mm. to be able to do it. And again, I apologise for not knowing that exact number, but because it's not 
a council function, yeah. I haven't spent a lot of attention on it because I've got enough to deal with with yes. knowing what's happening yes. with council. Yeah. I don't want to know what's happening at state government level for every department no, as well. No, that's right, absolutely. Uh, but, but there's certainly a number, and again, people know about it because they've received letters to yeah, say, by the way, yeah. you're going to have a bus stop at the front of your place. So it's, it, obviously the advice is here is the fact that if you are concerned by this, then you need to contact uh, this government agency in regards to the email that would have been sent there through the letter that you've got to uh, contact them and voice your objection. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it does have an email address there. So I, I would suggest go out and reach out to them. Mm. And I just very quickly looked it up here. I think there's probably 72 bus stops there. 72? Yeah. Now, okay. Some of those might be in the CBD. Yeah, so, some so there's of them, probably some existing ones that might already be there. There might be some existing ones. They might be adding some in the CBD area, for mm. example. So they're not all residential, but there's a fair number. Mm. So again, that makes sense because you've got a, mm. a fairly big area to cover and extra bus routes to go through. Mm. So keep an eye on that. I don't know what Transport mm. for New South Wales will do about it when you contact them because they're committed to improving bus services. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Anyway, keep it an is, eye on that it? one. Absolutely. But I see here the fact that after the great success, and I always say it was a great success, the New South Wales Touch Football Gala weekend we had in here uh, in Dubbo here, only going back a few months ago. And I know we talked about this, that uh, the Dubbo City Council, was, uh, the regional city council, he was going to actually put in a tender for um, to see if we can uh, get them back again. So it looks as though, from what I can gather, that the tender's been put in or is the, the process about to be put in? Where are we up to in regards to this? Yeah, so we've put that tender in. Oh, uh, great. And you're spot on. It was back at the end of February, 24th to 26th of February, from memory, mm. for this Good year. memory. Well done. <laughs> and if, <laughs> if it's right. But, uh, but we got that because Port Macquarie had the three-year, the previous three-year tender, mm. they'd won that. We'd put in for it previously and we didn't get it. Mm. But because they had so much wet weather for the first two years, the people, the participants really said, you've got to move from Port Macquarie. So we were lucky enough, when I say lucky enough, we put a good bid in for it mm. to just get it as a one-off for one year. Now we put that in and we said in that we're not going to pay a single cent to New South Wales Touch. Yep. The local Dubbo Touch Association did, they contributed $10,000 of cash. Mm. What we did say to the Touch Association was we'd make sure everything was spot on for you. Mm. We'll make it as easy as possible for you to run the event, mm. but we don't want to hand over cash because mm. we just don't have the budget to hand over big chunks of cash to yeah. everyone that comes and knocks on our door. Yeah. And obviously they were happy with that. They ran it here. We had fantastic oh, participation. Yeah. The feedback was unbelievable. And really the feedback from many people was great. Can hardly wait to see it back next year. Mm. Hopefully you'll get it for the next three years, et cetera, et cetera. Now, mm. unfortunately, you've got not those people there on the ground on the day making the decision. Would, they would have been those people. Exactly that. right. Yes, it would yeah. have been guaranteed. So it still goes now because the end of that first three-year contract was this year and they're always going to go out to the next tender for the next three years. Mm. And Port Macquarie have said definitively, we're going to put in a bid for it again, okay. even yep. though we had some yep. bad luck with weather. We still think we've got something attractive to offer mm. and they probably do. Mm. But we've put in another tender for it. Again, we've gone with that same concept of not going over and handing over a big chunk of cash. Yep. I don't think that's sustainable from our perspective, from a budget perspective. Mm. It injected millions of dollars into our economy, which is fantastic, but mm. not a lot of that money came back to us. Mm. They used our fields, they used our facilities, which is great, yep. but not a lot of money came back to council, mm. if any of that money came back to council, but it was good for the overall economy, good mm. for the overall mm. community. Absolutely. So we've put some costings around it because one of the things that you need to look at to be fair and transparent with the community is, yes, we didn't hand over a dollar to an external organisation in cash, mm. but it still costs money to get it all set up and running. And that is normally staff time with preparing fields, line marking, a whole range of things that our staff do. Now, 
with that, or keeping that in mind, the staff are employed anyway. We didn't employ extra staff to do all that work. Maybe some of them got some overtime for some of the yep. extra work they might have done, but they would have been Shifting employed. Shifting job roles for that week sort of thing, maybe. Maybe, that's yeah. that's right. So maybe we didn't mow the track of rider that week because mm. we're busy mowing the sporting fields, for example. Mm. So it, there is still a cost to it. And to try and make it transparent, we've apportioned that cost. So again, this was discussed on Thursday night. Okay. Yep. $85,000 is what we estimate the cost if you broke it down for those costs of those staff wages, for example. Mm. And there are a few higher costs. We hired some little mini grandstands and that type of thing as well. But the reality is mm. it's a very cheap exercise in external money as opposed to that paying our staff. Because we would have paid the staff anyway. Yep. Our staff would have turned up for that week of work, whether they are doing line marking on those sporting fields or they are out taking care of some weeds mm. along track of riding. Mm. So they were still there. So I don't think it's a direct cost of $85,000. But again, we've done that just to make sure the community knows, yes, there is a cost in wages, et cetera, and $85,000. Yeah. So we put that in, keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. It's based Do we on know when we should hear anything from about that or is there a time frame on their decision-making? They normally don't take too long, so I don't okay. expect it to be that far away. A month at most, I would suggest, before okay. they make that decision. Yep. And one of the reasons they do that is because people have got to do a lot of planning to get there. It'll be a similar time frame next year if it's on, so they need a lot of planning to basically arrange to get there. But I guarantee what happened this time, the second it was announced as Dubbo, then an hour later you couldn't find a motel room. Yeah. So when they make <laughs> that announcement, right. people are poised by the phone yep. to start picking up the phone and Might be worthwhile, folks, to preempt the outcome possibly. <laughs> get in early. <laughs> Maybe. So that'll be great if we get it again. And one of the things that we do do well, I think, is have those sporting events in Dubbo, those sporting carnivals, which injects yeah. a lot of money into Absolutely. our economy. Now, speaking of uh, sporting carnivals, this is probably a bit more of a sedate form of uh, sport than uh, in touch football, but... Lawn bowls. Now, the Bowls New South Wales, they're looking at running the state championships here in Dubbo, which is very exciting news for everyone involved in lawn bowls. And even for that point of view, for the community, because this would be a massive event, I'd suggest. Hmm. Now, they're looking, though, in regards to it, to, to have it here. They've actually asked council for $25,000 um, as part of the injection, I suppose, to, to get this up and running here. Um What's council's general response to this situation when you have a, a group coming in that wants to run an operation, uh, like you saw that there with the touch football, and they obviously wanted money for that, but council sort of turned around and said something else, we'll, we'll give you the services. How does it work in regards to something like this where um, I'm assuming it's probably going to be run through some of our great lawn bowl facilities around town? I'm assuming they're probably not going to need council uh, people to come in there and mow their lawns. Um, so... How does council go about making a decision in regards to whether or not they give these guys $25,000? And it's a really tough one. The decision, ultimately, this is above the level that the policy for council allows staff to go and make a decision around mm. funding an event such as this. So it does come to council. So again, this was discussed on Thursday night at the standing committee meetings. Yep. No final decision comes out of that. Of course, it's all about the council meeting in two weeks' time. Mm. But it's an interesting one. In something like this, it would be an absolutely fantastic event for Dubbo. Mm. They typically hold these in metropolitan areas. They've made a decision where they want to take them to regional areas, and they've yep. actually picked Dubbo and said, we'd like to run it there in 2024, 2026, and 2028, presumably the in-between years we run in metro areas yep. still, so they'd yep. go back and forth, they'd alternate between the two. So they're looking for $25,000 each time they come here? They're saying that we'll charge you, as a city, a hosting fee. Right. And you're quite right. There's some great bowling greens you've got at places like 
the West Dover Bowling Club mm. and the Macquarie Club, for example, mm. you'd use some of those. There might be some other areas they might use as well. Mm. Maybe even go out as far as Narromine, for example, depending how yeah. many yeah. actual bowling greens they need. So that all sounds interesting. Then when you start to look at how many people it will attract and for what length of time, again, what's it going to do to the economy, they talk about 1,700 people over 13 days. So wow. basically two weeks of bowlers being me. in our city. So you go, well, that's That's fantastic. actually bigger than what you'd expect then with, the, say, the touch football, which is for the weekend. We're talking about people coming here for a long time Couple and a lot more people. That's yeah. right. Now, you're talking about approximately an injection into our economy of $1.8 million. Wow. So you go, well, okay. that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And if they want $25,000 to do that for $1.8 million, that sounds like nothing. Mm. But again, here's part of the problem. We don't get a return on it. Council doesn't get mm. a return on it. The economy mm. does. The hospitality, the motels, various people will get some money out of these people being here. The Westerville Bowling Club, for example, will get some money out of it mm. being here. But then we've got an event fund. We've got a budget there for an event fund to try and attract various events. And we've been successful in that in the past. And just to give you a few other examples, Cricket New South Wales Youth Championships, for example, we paid $10,000 to get that hosted, just over $10,000 there, yep. and used a council venue for that. But we estimate that injected about $870,000 mm. into the economy. Fantastic. Little Athletics, they've done a couple of events there. So one, for example, we paid $10,000 for. We got $1.4 million as an injection. So another one, we, we had $3,000 for Little Athletics Region mm. 3, $428,000. Mm. So you're always looking at that ratio, that return on that investment. Mm. $25,000, $1.8 million sounds, sounds reasonable. Like That's yeah. right. Yep. But again, the problem here is that that pretty much blows our budget for event attraction. Right. So anything else that we want to attract, we say, oh, we really think that would be a good event for Dubbo, but oh, we blew the whole budget mm. on that one event. So what do you do? Do you then go out to some of the people who will gain benefits from this, the motels, the clubs, the hospitality places, the cafes, and say, we'd like you to sponsor this event for $500 mm. and we'll use that money to pay $25,000 to mm. the statewide organisation. I actually think it's a little bit rude sometimes that these various organisations come and put the hard word on council for this. It's again, I'm taking your money, I'm taking your ratepayers' money and I'm paying it to a state-based organisation. Mm. Is that the best way to use your money? Is that the best thing to do with it? And it's a bit unfair on these organisations to ask for it. Now, if I put the other hat on, if I'm chairman of Bowls New South Wales, mm. and I say, well, I've got councils out there who are happy to pay me money to help cover our cost of hosting it, absolutely that's what I want. Yeah, so yeah. putting the cap on the other side or yeah. putting the, the shoe on the other foot, then I want to get as much money from everywhere to reduce the costs for me running it. I might be able to reduce entry fees, for example. Mm. I might be able to run this at a profit for our organisation and help grassroots in the sport. So I want as much money as I can from everyone, mm. but on the flip side, as council, I don't want to pay anything to get these yeah, events Yeah, I can see that, absolutely. Yeah. Is, is this, though, maybe, though, part of what council has to do sometimes from time, in the sense that as part of the role of council is to attract events like this, and uh, even though you've got the, there's certainly a set budget um, in regards to it, obviously, from the point of view of the current upcoming year and the financial budget, there's maybe an opportunity because it's got in before the final budget for this year has been made. Could we maybe make allowances for that? But I take your point in regards to private operations and this sort of thing running this. Um, but is this also part, though, of where the, the, the problem lies being council sometimes? How much do we spend to attract these groups in? Uh, who do we give the money to? And, you know, even though councils per se may not necessarily gain financial benefit, the community itself does, though. Well, that, that's the big point, isn't it? The community gains a benefit. 
we're taking money that we've got from the community mm. and then using it to give some community benefits. But the argument against that is I've got a 70-year-old pensioner who just manages to scrape enough money each quarter together to pay her rates and then I come along and take some of her rates money and I pay it to Bowles, New South Wales, to host an event that will benefit motels, mm. benefit cafes, benefit hospitality places, but probably not a direct benefit to that particular lady. So how do I justify putting all that together and then saying I'm – I run into that little old lady down the street and mm. says, Matthew, why are you why are you charging me so much of my rates? And I say, well, I need all that rates money because I've got to give some to Bowles New South Wales. Mm. And she hits me over the head with her handbag. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is the big challenge. I mean, don't forget, $350,000 is what South Sydney charged mm. Dubbo Regional Council yes. to come. Now, as we yes. know, the $150,000 of that was paid by the New South Wales government. Yeah. And so we did lose money on that event. We didn't lose $350,000. Mm. But this is where it's at. For South Sydney... I'm ad abhorred by the fact that mm. fairly rich NRL clubs charge councils to come to regional areas and take the game to the people. Mm. Why don't you just do it as part of the normal process that you would do to, to keep promoting the game? Mm. But on the flip side, again, if I'm in charge of South Sydney, if someone's going to pay me three fifty to come out, I'll take the money. Thanks very much. So mm. this is a challenge we have. I don't know what the final decision will be. Again, in two well, weeks' time, we'll make the final decision. But it also seems to be the thing, though. This seems to be the way operations seem to be running, though, don't they? Like, you've, you've just mentioned three – well, we've mentioned three groups here. We've talked about New South Wales uh, Touch, which wanted money, per se, and you managed to sort of bounce back with the, okay, we'll give you uh, operational costs, as, you know, ways of setting that up from the point of view of getting the fields and those sort of things done for you. We're not going to give you money, per se. South Sydney wanted $350,000. The New South Wales lawn bowls, they're wanting $10,000. It's almost like this seems to be the way operations are wanting to run these days, aren't they? You know, Put the hand out and say, we need the money. If you want our operations and our tournaments, you've got to pay us the money. And the problem is that if we don't, more than likely there'll be another council that will. So exactly, they go to another yeah. council, they get paid their $25,000, yep. and then people in Dubbo say to me, Matthew, why are you letting that mm. other place mm. Council X or City Y, why have they got the tournament? That would have been great for us. We've got some great bowling greens here. Yep. So that's the problem you have. And we've almost all created the rod for our own backs. Mm. And I do mm. remember saying to the Bathurst mayor, not the current Bathurst mayor, a former Bathurst mayor, many years ago, when Bathurst agreed to pay the Penrith Panthers a lot of money to come out and play a game there in Bathurst. And I do remember saying to him then, I said, that's just made it hard for everyone else mm. because now that they know that they can get paid that kind of money. Yeah. Every club will say, well, has been set, that's right, you've yeah, set the president. Yeah. And so all of these other clubs, sporting groups, organisations, etc., are all doing the same thing. Hey, it's mm. a bit of a bidding war. There's 128 councils out there. So who wants me? Who's prepared to pay? Yeah, it's almost yeah. like a, a bit of a silent auction yes, yes. that you go out there and say, right, well, we'll do it. Yeah. Maybe someone needs to set up a public auction for all of these different events <laughs> right. and go out there and, and Make go it all very the, public for everyone to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... Could we get it for less than $25,000? Mm. I don't know. Where is their point? I don't know what they're thinking. Is. Where is their mm. point where they'd say, we still want to take it to Dubbo, even if they give us nothing? Or they came down originally, their initial hosting fee they wanted was $70,000. they have come right. from seventy to 25000 yep. If we offer them ten, will they take that, for That's example? Right. Yeah, so well, well, yeah. these, are, these are the problems we've got, and this is the issue we've got. We want these events. We want these various things. They're great for our economy. They're great for just having vibrance in activity mm. in Dubbo. But gee, we don't want to pay for them all the time. No, so that's right. No easy yeah. answer there. Yeah. And and again, always councils have always got their financial hat on, saying 
It's not my money. It's mm. someone else's money. Mm. What's the best way I can use? The accountability all the time, isn't it? That's right. And that's I don't have a problem with that. Mm. And that's why we have these discussions so mm. that the community knows all these decision-making processes. And people have different opinions on it. Mm. If you're a follower of bowls, you absolutely would mm. say, yeah, pay the money. That's fine. I don't mm. mind some of my rates money going towards it. Yeah. But if you're saying, well, I want you to spend that money on something else, I want you to go out and get an NRL club again. Mm. I follow rugby league. So mm. all of these problems we've got to keep dealing with. That's it. Speaking of again money and, uh, and people requesting money, the River Repair Bus. Now, this is an operation, it's a group uh, that goes around, um, a lot of them volunteer base, I'm assuming, uh, who go and help out the, the river care areas and fixing up uh, weeding areas and uh, planting little trees and shrubs and things like that. They do a terrific little job. Um, now, they're in request of money again. It's about $45,000. I think $45,000 are looking for. Um, again, I suppose the question goes back in regards to the point of discussion. How does council make a decision on something like this? This is a community-based group. They're requesting $45,000 from them. Um, should this be something that they should be requesting to put into a budget uh, that comes through every year, or can it be done as a as a decision through council, put forward as an idea, that's a suggestion? Can council make a, a ruling on this straight away, or what is the process? At the moment, as you know, we've got our draft budget out mm. on display till the 29th of May. Quick plug for that. Go and have a look at that. There it is, absolutely. Put your submissions in there. Yeah. And so that's usually the general activities that we're undertaking and the expenses of those various activities. But the great thing at the moment is you've got the chance to put submissions in. The River Repair Bus is a little bit different. It's not budgeted for at the moment. Mm. They did approach us previously, as in last year, and said, we previously received $45,000 from council to do some work, and they do some things along the river, tree planting, bit of rubbish removal, mm. weed control. So there's various activities they undertake, and, and yep. I think they generally do a pretty good job with all of that. Yep. And so they wanted money to continue to fund those operations. Now, again, we need to look at that and say, do we just give it to them because we gave it to them before? Is mm. that the reason you do something? Mm. It's a terrible reason to do something mm. just because mm. we've always done it. Yep. So we need to look at that and say, how is the best way to spend $45,000 in getting some of these services delivered? So last year we made the decision to say, we're not going to fund you. We're going to see how our internal operations, our internal staff undertake those various operations as part of the work because they do. Seem they do tend to sort of mash over a bit together there. There's a bit of meshing, I'd suggest, of, uh, of what they're doing and what council do anyway. Is that right? Or? A little bit of duplication, yeah, I would suggest. And yeah. they may do it to a slightly different standard yep. to what council might do it. Yep. But certainly, I'd suggest there is a bit of a crossover between mm. the two there. And so that's fine. You have contractors to do some work from time to time. And that's the way I'd probably view this. It would be a contract that we'd pay $45,000 to get some work done along the river that then our staff can free up that time to go and do some work mm. somewhere else. Mm. So last year we made the decision not to fund them. This year they've come back again. Fair enough. That's well within the rights of any – That's yes. right. Any organisation can come and ask yep. council for money. Just don't get offended if we say no because we're not <laughs> going to say yes to everyone. And yeah. so at the moment we've got to make that decision. Now, we could make that decision before the budget. We could make that decision as part of that budget. Mm. It's gone through our standing committee meetings last Thursday. But again, no decision was made there. It'll be a decision made at the next council meeting. But it could also be a decision made to consider it as part of the budget deliberations. Mm. Mm. Whether we fund them or not, that'll be, again, a council decision. But it'll be based around, I think, councils will make a decision based around $45,000 I've got in my hand right now is 
the best way to spend that money by having our internal staff do some of these operations or by paying that to an external contractor. Mm. And that's what you've always got to consider the so best So this can be put money. forward as an agenda item through council. Is that right? That's uh, So in any operational group out there can turn around and say, look, I'd like, let's say, $45,000. That can then come forward and be put down uh, as an agenda item. This has got to go through a workshop first or has it got to... No, it could come through in a range of different ways. It could just come through a notice of motion. And mm. some people involved with the River Repair Bus have told me that in previous years, in terms of the last council, there was just a notice of motion put forward by an individual councillor, someone mm. that was sympathetic to their cause, and then there'd be a vote of council, it'd be a majority vote, and then, yep, you fund it again. Right. I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. I'd certainly prefer to get some information from our staff rather than make an ad hoc decision mm. on the spot to mm. say... What services are they providing? What services do we provide? Is there duplication? Is this the most efficient? Because again, mm. if I've got $45,000 in my hand, I don't want to spend it in anything other than the most efficient way because I want to get the best value for money for you, the ratepayer, mm. with mm. that $45,000. So yes, any community group can come forward. They could get a, a council. They could get a staff member and, and look at the process there and see how it might be delivering on some services. It might be something that's a part of our strategic long-term operations, for example. Yep. Yep. But yes, that's possible. But again, it would be unlikely that a bunch of organisations would suddenly come forward and mm. we'd fund all these different organisations because, mm. again, it's got to be strategic. We don't yep. want to do things ad hoc. I think really important part is making sure we do things strategically. Yes. Harrington Avenue, which, of course, is that little street that uh, sits in between, what is it, uh, Talbragar Street and, I'm um, guessing... Help me out here. Is that uh, Windsor Warren? Oh, well, it church joins Street, it? Ch- Church to Talbragar and, then and it's parallel between Brisbane and Darling. That's right. That's yeah, exactly yeah. right. Well, there's the, the government office block there, which uh, sits in behind the DRTCC slash Regional Council Chambers, which has been there for many, many years. Um, I've got a feeling it's about to be knocked down and a huge, big New South Wales government building is about to go in that's possibly going to have about 700 people in there. Yeah. Is this right? Is my mail correct? You're right. You're on the spot. On, on the, the spot on, again, uh, eh? Yeah, you're guilty. Right. You've hit the nail on the head. No, I'll keep paying him in that dollar fifty a week then. That's awesome. <laughs> that's right. So this development will be pretty big. A $35.7 million public admin building. Wow, that's huge. Five office working levels and two basement levels for underground car parking. Wow. So, yeah, pretty big. And basically the idea here is they're trying to, the government here is trying to consolidate 24 existing different government offices. I couldn't name where those 24, 24? are across Dubbo. What, all in the one place? They're trying to, well, they're, at the moment, they're all over the place. Yeah, they're in 24 different locations. So they're trying to bring them all together. Wow. As you say, about 700 staff there yeah. in the one location. Car parking, a bit of an issue. You've got yeah. two underground car parks. Will that fit 700 people? No. The, okay. All that was required, <laughs> right, okay. the additional parking that was required for that to be approved with only about 70 car parking spaces. Oh. So Where other car park? parking around the area will be needed. So it oh. might be a Victoria Park number one oval, for example. Right. They might even talk to us about contributing, making some sort of development contributions to a multi-storey car park somewhere down in the CBD, yeah. maybe down okay. on Blyer Street. They're all to come. But at the moment, see, we don't approve this. This is above the cutoff level that we would approve. This is $35.7 million. So this doesn't have to go through uh, at our council to make an approval on this? It went to the Western Regional Planning Panel. They're the consent authority on right. this particular okay. process. And sometimes when it's a government building, it won't go through council. Mm. Or when it's above a certain level, there's a whole range of different rules that might trigger mm. it going to uh, 
to the Western Regional Planning Panel, for example. Mm. So that's where it's gone in this case. So that's now been approved okay. at some stage in the near future. I don't see why it would stop. I mean, there's been a change of government, but I assume yep. this is all in train. At some stage in the very near future, you'll see that current building, which is a mm. large building, has been there for yeah, a long yeah. time, come down, and then a larger one yeah, go back up right. there. What is really interesting from this, I think, is... Obviously, those 24 existing government offices that they've got around the community yeah. will then be freed up. So that will give more office space for other organisations to come along. Yes. And hopefully, yes. that might be a good thing that other companies, other organisations might say, well, we're looking for some office space and there's some office space mm. in Dubbo. Great, mm. we can go and jump on that and use that. So yeah. it's a big development. It probably also shows the confidence. I was going to say, it's a great sign of confidence for Dubbo too when you get this. It is. Mm. And it's not, I suppose, a little bit different to business confidence. The government is going to have government employees doing things, but obviously they see Dubbo as an important enough mm. service centre mm. that they think it's valuable to have all those people there in one building Absolutely. all together. So, yeah, keep an eye on that. You won't know, you won't miss it when it actually no, happens. That's we exactly right. We won't need to talk about it. People will know about it when it's happening. <laughs> it will happen. And I don't know the time frame yet on that, but it's mm. been approved, is the, and that's the first of all. Oh, that's excellent plans. to hear. Well, mate, we've uh, got to that time of the show. It's time for your limerick. So, uh, look, we've been pretty busy again here today. We've covered a lot of different areas. So I am actually very interested to hear where are we going to go with your limerick today? Well, it is actually tough because looking across all those different topics, I, I thought about doing it about Tony McGrain. I thought about a road trip. Mm. I thought that might get a bit ugly with a road trip limerick. So, <laughs> so thought about a few lines for you. I can probably throw <laughs> thought about some of the things from the standing committee meetings on Thursday mm-hmm. night. Uh, talk about giving money out to various groups. So there's so many different topics to choose from, but what I went with was this. In the halls of Charstert, quite grand, studied Emma with her future planned. The McGrain was her feat, a scholarship so neat, her triumph echoed throughout the land. Ah, mate, that's wonderful. Well done, you clever man yet again. (laughs) Well, folks, of course, that just about wraps us up now for our Merrill Memo for this week. Folks, get out there. I'd say it every week, but this week I think it's going to be an absolute cracker. The weather's going to be those mid-20s. Get out and enjoy it. Until next week, everyone, take care. Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.